With episodes nearing 350 in the Stages archive, it's time to revisit conversations featured in our previous seasons. Stages spotlight such episodes in case you miss them the first time round, or so you can simply savour a second listen. Either way, you'll be accessing precious oral histories from the people who were there on and around our stages. Nancy Hayes is synonymous with Australian show business, and her presence in any show guarantees a consummate artist determined to engage with vast skill and an extensive joy that she invests into every performance. In October, the great lady celebrated 60 years of life on the boards. Nancy Hayes is one of our great elders. Her tremendous warmth, star quality and enormous contribution to the arts in Australia have made her universally adored. Stages salutes her six decades as a leading lady by revisiting this sparkling two-episode conversation from 2020 when she visited the podcast to record her remarkable story. Hello, you're listening to Stages and I'm Peter Ayers. Welcome to this companion episode celebrating the magnificent Nancy Hayes. In part one, we learned of her determination through childhood to emulate the great stars of the MGM musicals that figured prominently in her cinema attendance. And then onto a career developing her talents in a succession of J.C. Williamson musicals, before eventually landing the leading role of Charity Hope Valentine in Sweet Charity, helping to cement their knowledge that Australian performers certainly had what it took to lead a company and tell stories in important musicals. The accolades came thick and fast, leading Nancy to great acclaim and onto a career that has seen her conquer all genres and theatrical roles, on and off the stage. She's contributed dynamically to the industry in creative roles as director, choreographer, mentor and teacher. Her vast repertoire of plays and musicals has given us dynamic performances in Sweeney Todd, Nine, Showboat, Pippin, The Importance of Being Earnest, Same Time Next Year, Steel Magnolias and Six Dance Lessons in Six Weeks. Nancy Hayes is synonymous with Australian show business and her presence in any show guarantees a consummate artist determined to engage us with her vast skill and extensive passion for performance. So what attracts you to a show, Nancy? How do you know that it's for you? Um, well, usually that it's got a great character to play, that it's got a good book. I love a good book and, and some great numbers. I mean, perfect combination. Um, and, you know, there's, there's less and less of that writing now, actually, the people that write particularly the great books, because there's a lot more, I think, musical numbers that, that advance the storyline rather than scenes, mm. it seems to me. A lot of sung-through musicals, sung through I guess. Sung-through musicals, yeah. yes. And I love, I think a lot of what you create as the character comes from the acting side of, for me, the acting side of the, of the show informs how the character works in song and dance. Have there been offers where you thought, no, that's definitely not for me? Oh, I think there have been, yes, yeah. over the years. I know that there's things that I, I couldn't pull off, it wouldn't be, right. wouldn't be right. I can't think what they are, but, yeah, yeah. but they've certainly been there. Yeah. Dorothy Brock, backstage show business story seems to be mm. a common subject for musicals, and 42nd Street is certainly one of those. Um, Gypsy, Dames at Sea, Curtains, The Bandwagon, 
and he gets your gun. Show business is full of great characters. Yes. Why, why do you think... Well, I suppose I'm answering my own question. Uh, because they're full of such, such great characters, they're full of great stories. So they deserve a musical treatment. Well, they do. And it, it is the classic story, isn't it? The star, the little girl from the chorus taking over from the star and the star finally being gracious about it and actually truly, truly admitting that it's no longer the love of her life. She's just trying to keep, keep going with it all. So, no, no it's, a, it's a good... It's, just the, it's the Cinderella story in some ways, isn't it? Which is what My Fair Lady is. Well, indeed. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So if you hadn't been a leading lady, what do you think you would have done? I have no idea. Yeah. I have. I really have no idea. Because I guess, you know, with dancers, there comes a time where yes. you can't People teach. Perform they anymore. go on and teach. Um, I don't think that would have been... I mean, I'm, I've enjoyed the, the stints I've done with, with teaching or mentoring, I prefer to call it, um, and sharing and trying to, you know, encourage people to, to progress in what their, their, their dream. But I don't think I would have become a teacher. I might have, might have gone back to a secretarial, do you think? I don't think I could do any shorthand now, though. <laughs> Couldn't do a squiggle. <laughs> you managed to get to New York quite a bit and see theatre. That's the home of the musical. It's an American art form, of course. Is there a show that st- stands out for you in those visits? Well, Sweeney, certainly. Yeah. And I saw Sweeney. Um, I remember Two Promises Promises it was a wonderful because they'd never used that kind of sound in the theatre before and the, and the voices in the pit and the whole thing and that's a great story too and Jerry Orbach was absolutely beautiful in that. And I well, The Apartment, the Billy Wilder is such a great yeah. film. Isn't the it? other yeah. one that I remember being knocked out by was 1776 which um, I was... I had a friend in New York who'd been who'd taken over as Rosemary in How to Succeed, a girl called Leslie Seacombe, and she'd gone to New York to study with Uta Hagen, but she worked as a secretary on Fifth Avenue for this English, and she had this terribly English accent. She would, and they loved that. The Americans loved this English secretary accent, so she was working and, and studying. And she had she later married Jay Gerber, who became who was Frump. And he had this wonderful apartment down in the um, the Bronx, in the Bronx, and we'd go over Sunday and we'd go out for brunch and you know, bagels and the whole thing and get the the New York Times and open it up and see all these things that you, with a big red pencil, circling everything you wanted to see. And he said to me, "Look, there's a sleeper coming in." I said, "Oh, what's that? What's a sleeper?" He said, "It's a show. No one thinks it's going to land, and it's going to land." And he said, "We'll go down tomorrow, you and I, because Leslie had to go to work." And we'll get in the line and we'll get the tickets. And we got the tickets for that night and it was 1776. It was the most beautiful production. It was so strong dramatically that I didn't think they were going to sign the the, the independence. Declaration. Declaration of Independence. I, I, it was just amazing. And all these wonderful men, some of them sat for three quarters of the night and you know you didn't know what they were going to do, suddenly got up and did this incredible number. And the lighting, the... the the way that the they were all kind of Venetian type wooden blinds, and the way the lighting changed for different parts of the day, and wow. and this wonderful boy that was a messenger had um, he would come in with with dispatches from George Washington, and then he'd go, and then he sat down on his own, and the old waiter or whatever he would have been called gave him, I think, 
a run or something. And each time the boy came in, his spurs would drag a little more. And that was the only reason you knew he was so tired. He wasn't physically playing tired, but those spurs would drag. And he sat down and he sang, Mama, look sharp. And of course, it was the middle of the, just towards the end of the Vietnam War. And with a feeling in that theatre was extraordinary. Wow. It was a beautiful, beautiful production. Now well, later, J.C. Williamson did it and Louis Fiander came out because he had done it in London. And James Smiley And was James Smiley was in it. And, uh, um, oh, so there, were, there was a great line of them, guys, but it didn't really well, land I was going to say, was it received no, well? No, it didn't, no. Of course, it, it was as beautiful as it was. It just didn't have that impact. So do you sit there watching Angela Lansbury and think, oh, oh I'd love to do this? Oh, well, of course. Yeah. I love Angela Lansbury. My first show I saw, first time I was on Broadway, was Dear World. Oh, wow. Yeah, I missed her in MAME. I never saw MAME. But um, I went to see Dear World and she was just extraordinary playing the mad woman of Shio. And she had this costume on that looked at... It had been white. You knew it had been white, but it had turned to parchment. Right. And she had this wig, this red wig. It had obviously been like a bird nest hairdo with a knot on the top of her head. And it had, strands had gradually fallen down and they'd been stuck back up again. And her eye makeup was like she'd never taken off the blue shadow and just added it. Oh, wow. So she looked amazing <laughs> and she was just beautiful singing. Um, and I was beautiful in those numbers. Mm. And Milo O'Shea was the sewer man. And I was lucky enough to meet her when she came out to do driving Miss Daisy and I said to her I remember that she said I loved that show and we were always going to do it again because she said it fell at a time where they'd had such a great success um, Jerry Herman had such a great success that they wanted to turn it into a big show like Dolly and she said it should have been a boutique show and but she said we never got around to doing it again oh. so they just felt it, it sort of was a bit old-fashioned but those sections of it weren't but the actual dancing around with ballets and all of that just left it in that halfway house area yeah. in that particular time. That was 1969. And I also saw James Earl Jones in The Great White Hope. That's a performance you'll never forget either. Wow. Fantastic. Great. It was a very, very wonderful introduction to New York. Do you get back to New York often? Not, not anymore. No. no, not so much now. I would go more, but uh, and Bob, we, we went very often. But um, he's now, he's over airports. Fair enough. He has a, he has a, a knee replacement, so all the bells uh, and whistles go off, oh, and yeah. then he's taken away shoes to a shoes on. Yeah. So he's over it. He's over it. But I'll probably try and pop back. I want, to, I want to try and find a season that I think there's a hole that I'd really like to see. And go and indulge. Yeah, absolutely. It's a shot in the arm. I think it is. Isn't it? Oh, it's, it's, it's an absolute... The best professional development as a performer you can do. I um, reckon. Yeah. I really do. And I love it when you know, I love it when the kids get away so much. I know it probably costs them dearly. and But I think it's money well spent. Mm. Really well spent. To see uh, the Yanks, you know, do a craft that they invented. That they invent. Uh, and when you see it done well, it inspires you. And when you see it... When it's a little questionable, it also encourages you mm, that mm. we're not doing too badly at all. Absolutely. Because we've got some wonderful, wonderful talent. So you were at the very first Nellie Lovett in, in the country, weren't you, here, I think? Did Just. You do the first production of Sweeney? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, Jeb opened oh, at about two weeks later. Really? Yeah, with, the, with the chamber version. They were, they were on at the they same time. They were very close. They were very close. You were in Adelaide. I was in Adelaide with the um, 
South Australian Opera. Right. Gail Edwards directed us and um, Andrew Green was the conductor and the two of them had wanted to do it. So they'd been talking to the opera company for some time. And Lyndon Terracini played um, Sweeney and Peter Cousins was Anthony and Tony Taylor was Tobias. Gorgeous. Guys. So it was half musical theatre people, half opera people. Yeah. And uh, again, one of those thrilling things because people were a bit oh what's this in the opera season you know but when it when they saw it they certainly were taken by it right. as you can't help but be i don't think oh no i think it's it's one of the great musicals ever. Oh, it's in my it, top five when i saw it in new york and that whistle went off hmm. and then that fantastic score and when the the main um, section turns and, and Mrs. Lovett comes out through the curtain. It's like, and I remember standing on that stage in Adelaide and the hair under my wig <laughs> would stand up. It was this so strong, this wonderful passage of music, this orchestration for that entrance. And such a great story. I mean, I know it's melodrama, but I still remember the first time I saw it and just completely devastated when you realise he's just murdered his wife, uh -huh. you know, the bigger yeah, woman. and. Uh -huh. And uh, all the relations, yeah. All the relations. Mm. And, and, and I think it's very important in to have the balance of the comedy. Well, she serves a very important role, doesn't she? I Mrs. think it's Lovett. really yeah. important that that's, that's always there because it just does place it in where it needs to be placed. Other than that, it becomes too need, dark. Yeah, you need dark. that relief, don't you? And of course. Mm. She gets her own come up. Have a little priest is just yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Oh, she certainly does. She certainly And does. that's a shock too. Mm. Yeah. Le cinema today is in a crisis. Directors are so existentialist. Some movies are not worth the entrance prices. If no one sings a love, someone is pleased. Continue. I want a musical. Love can I be love without the singing. A string, a clarinet, a saxophone. Take a lesson from this old Parisian land. The finest entertainment she has known. You were in a, a, a show in Australia, which I still call one of my favourite nights in the theatre, Nine. Ah. That was a great production. Wasn't it? Yeah. I was doing um, Guys and Dolls. I'd known John, of course, for many years. John Dietrich. John Dietrich. He came to see me when we were in Pippin, and he said, will you come and see my uh, production of Minnie's Boys? And he, his sister was starring as Minnie, and he was Groucho. He had this great lineup. He had all the. I, I don't know how he pulled it off, but it it was a really terrific production. It was just up on Eastern Hill in a in a church hall, so I went to see it on the Sunday, and I thought, oh, this boy is really extraordinary. 
and then I followed him over the years, of course. Big so, hit with Oklahoma. A big hit with yeah. Oklahoma, and if he'd done um, Gershwin, uh, which was a had a, with John O'May and Caroline Gilmer and Natalie Moscow, and then they did one called Twenties um, and all that jazz, yes. I think. And uh, then he went. To, I think it was then that he went to London. But he came to see me doing Guys and Dolls and he said, do you know a show called Nine? I said, yes. He said, I'm going to get that produced. Are you interested? And I said, I am very interested. And uh, I'd seen it in New York in 1982, I think it was, yes. In fact, a few of us were at that performance because I didn't know anything about Nine. I'd gone to an International Theatre Institute gathering in the south of France where Honey um, Coles and the Copacetics were teaching tap. Alan J. Lerner was there um, teaching lyric, lyric writing. writing. It was, an, it was sitting in a place called Bizier, gorgeous. And we went out to this chateau every day in these buses and they sprung the floor of the barn and they had the American dance machine teaching. They had the tap guys, they had you, you would do classes all day, whatever your interest was, and then in the evenings go go back, have a shower, have, and come back again, and, and the people that were teaching you would perform. It was beautiful. It was really lovely. And the, one of the, because I was much older than the rest of them were there, they were all young students, and came from Australia, my God. Anyway, um, they said, you can get a really cheap ticket to New York. They said, you go to Brussels and you go up this, up to you'll see this place and it's upstairs and you get a ticket. So I was travelling with my friend Judy Ferris, who'd been great mates since she worked at Menzies with me. And she was very much involved with Ensemble and the beginning of Ensemble. So we found we had this avenue to, to go away and we went we went over to France. And of course, she said, well, let's go to New York because we had friends we could stay with. And that was when we saw Nine because we weren't even expecting to be there. And it was just a beautiful show. It is glorious. Yeah, glorious. So that that was exciting that he got that happening, and uh, I could. But I but I could only go in when he spoke to me. I'd already been signed for Sweeney, and I said, "Gosh, John, I, I could, I, I've got to do that." He said, "Well, I don't know how it's going to go," so he said, "Would you come in and do it for the six weeks, do the rehearsal period, and then the six weeks?" And then I said, "Well, it's that ro any role, but particularly Lillian." could be a cameo role and you could put whoever into it. So that was the deal. And of course it, it was very well received. And then Val Lehman was going to take over and she got ill. The she'd, be, she'd be big in prisoner at that time, I suppose. Oh yes, yeah. very big. And was going to do a very different type of Lillian to me yeah. because I did it more as the dancer type Lillian. And she was going with to- With a great long boa. With a beautiful yeah. long boa, yeah. yeah. Um, and then that weekend, Jill had come over to do a morning melodies for Pounder down at the Arts Centre. And she came to the show on the Saturday night and came back and she said, oh, she loved it and the whole thing. So then I, I go off to do, they farewell me with a lovely signed poster and the, the closing night gift and everything. And I go to start rehearsals for Sweeney on the Monday and Gail gave us this great pep talk about having to get it done in three weeks. And we just all had to knuckle down and just you know, don't cut any corners, just get straight into it and the whole thing. At lunchtime, I get a phone call from John saying, oh, Nance, Val's can't go on. And your understudy, who was a little French girl, gorgeous, who helped me enormously with the accent, 
became so traumatized by the thought she had to go go on, she put herself into hospital and she would, was comatose for some reason. I don't know how she took them into it, but there was no one to go on. And he said, do you think you could fly back after rehearsals tonight? We'll have everything ready for you and do tonight. And I said, oh gosh, I said, I've just had a big pep talk from the director about how we, she can't spare us for a minute. So anyway, I went and spoke to Gail and she looked a bit shocked. And then she said, well, I can do without you till Wednesday. I can cover till Wednesday. So I got back onto him and indeed I was flown out of Adelaide and I actually literally walked through the stage door. Nobody spoke to me. I walked straight to my room, got into the costume, walked onto the stage and went, la, 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 la. And wow. I was there. And then Jill, um, something, um, I don't know why Val couldn't come back. I think she'd lost her voice. I think that, what it's, I can't remember now, but I said to John, what about Jill? And I spoke to John, she said, oh, and I have to ask Kevy. <laughs> I said, do you tell Kevy that you've got to do this? So anyway, um, another girl went on who sort of knew it, Penny, I can't think of her, her last name, Conrad Helfrick's wife, Penny. She held the fort when I went back and then Jill came into it the week later. Wow. Mm. And then because it was such a success, I came back and did the... After of, Sweeney. After Sweeney. Right. And did the end of the Melbourne season and then Brisbane, Adelaide, Sydney. Mm. Or something, yeah. So that was a lovely show, all those girls. Yeah, how exciting. Yeah. can be a bit tricky with a lot of girls. I can imagine. Different temperaments. Yeah. Different temperaments. But, no, but they all loved the show. Yeah. And it looked, I mean, Roger Kirk did beautiful, mm. beautiful costumes for that. And we all felt great. Yeah. Yes, but it's always interesting. And we're one man and all those girls. It um, it can prove tricky. Are costumes important to you? Do you, do I've, you? I'm very much about costumes. Do you have a say often with the designer? Do you talk? I, only if I'm in a position to do yeah, so. I'll yeah. say, look, that, I won't be, that won't suit me. Right. I know I know what I can pull off, you know, and 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 most of the time, uh, we could have, particularly with Roger Kirk. I mean, I can remember from day one with Chicago, he listened to us very much so, and we always felt really good in what we were wearing, um, and a lot of the time, I re I remember because I'd seen Promises, Promises in New York, and when um, when the Williamsons brought the shows, they would buy all the designs and often the wardrobe department would make all the costumes before anybody was chosen. So you suddenly were confronted with something that didn't always suit you. But a lot of the time the directors would say, no, 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 that doesn't look right. But I remember with, with Promises, Promises, I, I knew exactly what the girl wore. And when I was confronted with an entirely different look to this outfit, I said, this is not right. It was like duck, I looked like, it was a duck egg blue satin wrap around dress and she wore a chiffon one. So I said, I look like an Easter egg and I won't be coming back in this again. And, and if you feel like an Easter egg, you're not going to give the performance. You're never going to do it, you know. So they were, they were fine about that. And, and, but I knew it wasn't right. I knew they had chosen an entirely different fabric and it, it wasn't the, um, a wrap over dress moves. A satin frock wrapped over does not move. And Lady Hotham in Eureka, I believe you had a big, oh, big frock. I had a huge frock. <laughs> I had needed a chair and a whip with that frock. It was the biggest Union Jack. It was the Union Jack in right. this huge crinoline. 
and you stopped and it kept going. So you had to really anchor yourself so that you didn't get swept around, find yourself facing upstage instead of downstage when you stopped. They had to store it in the flies, I believe. They, they used yeah. to lower it onto me. <laughs> it's extraordinary. I believe you hold the record for the most shows at Her Majesty's in Melbourne. Do I? I believe so. My Fair Lady, How to Succeed, Hello Dolly, Sweet Charity, Pippin, Annie, Guys and Dolls, 42nd Street, Eureka, and Leading Ladies. Right. There right. you go. Okay. Might that be your spiritual home? Very, well, very much so, as you know, in, in the, for all the years. Because Williamson's were based in Melbourne, so even if we were opening a show in Sydney, we would rehearse down there. So we were always in that little, that what now they call the East End. And of course, Melbourne does have a theatre district. Oh, absolutely. Exhibition Street. And, mm. and when they're all working, which they are at the moment, it's so exciting mm. to see, to be around that area with people coming and going from shows. And, and when the lights come on at dusk I know, out the front. It's gorgeous. Very exciting. Gorgeous. They're very special places, theatres, aren't they? They're our temples. They are our temples. What do you love about being in a theatre? whether you're a performer or an audience member? I, it, it feels like home. I feel very... very it, although it is, it's funny how you you are backstage in a show, but I always feel I always feel uneasy going backstage to see people after a show, even though you've spent about a year in, in, in that dressing room. I always feel like I'm invading their... Their space. Their space. Yeah. I've never got over that. And... and, I, and, and I don't know why it is, but I just think you know now it belongs to them. But I love being—I love being an audience. I love going to shows and, and seeing things. I feel well, as you said, it's like going to church. Yeah. It's just where you feel happy and and re-energized and too, re-energized yeah. and you know and the anticipation of it, the adrenaline of it, and when things work, the ecstasy of it mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you like to set up your dressing room because that's uh, a space that is going to be a home away from home yes for... I, I usually move in uh, with first of all the way I set up my desk with the makeup then I have a little section where I can sit and do needlepoint then I have another section where people can come and visit me and I have um, usually have a little tea and coffee and whatever section and uh, and, and I I try to make it welcoming. Mm. I'm not a person that you can't talk to before the show starts. Well, I've never done those kind of roles, actually, so... All oh, right, well, you need that extreme focus or anything? Well, no, I, I, that's really not... What about what about ten minutes before overture or something? Do you, do you spend some time alone or you're quite happy? Oh, you well, can... you're getting ready and yeah. I, I spend... It's more when I hit the wings that yeah. I need that. Yes. But not so much in the dressing room with, you know, a closed door. Once I get into the wing... That's where it's sort of focus happens more for me. If there is a wing, indeed. (laughs) Some theatres don't even have a wing. But I I do say in a play, I say to a lot of people in a play, oh, God, I miss the overture. If I could just get an overture for this play, it would just sit me in the right. (laughs) (laughs) My springboard into the role. I heard a story, though. Even though you're doing a play... Do you play an overture? I often your... do. Yeah. I often do. I often Great. play a show when I'm getting ready. Yeah. Mm. Great. Yeah. Particularly one, I mean, I was sent, in fact, I went uh, to have lunch with Reg Livermore and, and Rob up in the mountains and um, he said, I've got something I want to show you. 
and it was the documentary of Grey Gardens. And then as I left, Rob said to me, here's the CD of the musical. And I said, oh, I didn't know there was one. And of course, at that stage, there was no reason to think that it would be done here, but mm. I just loved it. Mm. And uh, then I got a call from Ken Mackenzie Forbes to say, do you know a show called Grey Gardens? Yes, another one of us, yes. We're thinking of doing it with Pamela Rabe and we're thinking of you for Big Edie. And I said, I would love to do that role. And then they couldn't get the um, the rights for that year. So I I redirected um, or directed for them, Boy From Oz. I said, I'll do that if I can talk Todd into coming back to do it again. And uh, I was glad I did because I knew that as good as he was the first time, he'd grown so much from that experience. Mm. And I said, you know, you go back, reclaim it, reclaim it. You, you're fabulous in this role. Yeah. And he did, and he was really terrific. Yeah. So that was a lovely thing after the disappointment of not having, but it did happen the next year, so that was good. Once in a blue moon, it's worth all the yucca. That's when you taste the loving car. Year after year, the game's not worth a cracker. Then the moon changes color and the sky lights up. Yes, nights on end, you've half a mind to chuck it. Stick on your top hat, give it one last chance. And what do you know, you've caught the lightning in a bucket. When those moonbeams hit you and you go into your dance. An Australian musical, of course, of which you have done many. Yeah, I've been involved in quite a few, yeah. quite a few. I think, you know, a few of us have over the years. Uh, the work of Nick Enright. Oh, I love, well, I knew Nick from, well, Nick and Tony. I remember them coming to how to, to um, boys from Syracuse in their school uniforms. This is Tony Sheldon. Tony Sheldon. Right. And they would come backstage between shows because they had to go to matinees because they're both boarders. And we would sit and talk about musicals all the time. Really? Yes. They were they were. What did you think of these two schoolboys? Oh, well, they were gorgeous. Yeah. They were the two of them, so handsome, in, in their school uniforms and so well, so knowledgeable and so on top of it because... Tony Sheldon's like an encyclopedia on everything. Yeah. And Nick with the writing. Um, How exciting to see them at the very, very start before the very their beginning. careers had even That's begun. Right, yeah. yeah. So we, we went back a long way. But when he's, you know, to work with Nick on shows like, well, I first did choreography on the Venetian Twins while I was doing Annie because Keith Bain had injured his knee and he got in touch and said, will you come and do certain um, numbers? And he did like the opera one and the tango and things that were very much, because he was a great ballroom dancer. Yes. Keith Bain. So I remember going, um, and it was great because I only had Hedy LaRue, which is again is a cameo. So to spend every day in that rehearsal room with Drew Forsyth and John Ewing and um, and uh, the girls, that was Valerie and Jennifer uh, uh, McGregor, um, Annie Byron, and oh, they, it was a great, great cast. And uh, laugh, never, I've never laughed so much. It was so, they were so inventive the whole time. It's a funny, funny show. Oh, it was just magic. Yeah. Tony Sheldon and Tony Taylor met during that. Right, that production. Rehearsal, 
period, yeah. yes. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, on the Wallaby and Summer On Rain. the Wallaby yeah. was um, 1980 when, when Nick was over with the, um, the state company and uh, I went over again to play the mother in the family section of it and to choreograph. And then um, Rodney Fisher saw me playing the mother and he offered me um, songs from Sideshow Alley with Maggie Kirkpatrick. When that was that was another interesting one. Was that a two-hander? Or? It was a two-hander right. that Robin Nevin and Robin Archer had done for the festival in Adelaide. And then um, they decided to extend it to a two-act, which I think stretched it a little too far. But anyway, we were... We were doing it, but we had to learn to um, last do last lassoing and whip cracking. I had to learn from Ross Skivington how to escape from a, a chest, you know, with chains on my. Right. Had to learn that. I had to learn. Maggie had to learn to put swords through, you know, how you get into the box and they put swords through it. Yeah. Well, Gee. it was it was a big ask, I tell you. And the funny thing was, I'd get into this little tiny box, and. Um, Maggie, to learn it, we had she had the numbers where the slots and the knives had to go through. So I'd get in there, and of course it was very cramped, and Maggie'd say, oh, where are my glasses? So she'd be looking for a glass, and I'd say, Maggie, I'm getting, I'm getting cramped. You've got to find your glasses. Just wait a minute, love. Oh, here we go. I said, you have to let me out now. It's been too long. I can't stay in here. <laughs> and when I used to have to whip the Sydney Morning Herald, fortunately it was when the Sydney Morning Herald was a larger size, had to rip it in half while she held it with the whip. And I had friends who had a property up in Burke, so I went up there and learned from a stockman how to crack a whip. But Maggie said, I sometimes wish my arms were a bit longer. <laughs> was that a score by Robin Archer? Did she, had yeah, she written yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I later did Conquest of Carmen Miranda, which was hers too. So were you playing Carmen Miranda? I was. Can you imagine it? Wow! I got a fruit call on your head. I had Roger Kirk fruit on my head. The right. very best. Right. The very best. Fantastic costumes, and we did that in the recording hall. And Karen um, Johnson Mortimer and Natalie Moscow were the two, my two other girls dancing with me we did all those wonderful Karma Miranda numbers and then Noni Hazelhurst played the other side represented the people of South America because the premise was that we only knew South America from what we saw in the movies like Karma Miranda and but the reality of what was going on yeah. and of course being at the Opera House we had a lot of American tourists so they go oh Karma Miranda we'll see that and they were they were very not very pleased with what the what was being insinuated about the way they were treating so they often tore up their tickets and threw them at the ushers and really? left yes oh, wow. Wow. it was a bit controversial mm. was there with all the australian musicals that you've done you know jonah jones and metro street the robin archer shows is there a common element that defines it as an australian musical i don't think so no um well, certainly the fact that we can speak in an Australian accent, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. a, which is when I first had to what? do that, I thought oh, I feel a bit, I can't quite get the meter of this delivering a line with an yeah, Australian it's interesting, accent. Because you've done American musicals American, and then suddenly yeah, speaking yeah. in your own voice, voice is very just confronting. Finding, just finding how that how you laid that down, um, but I think that the wonderful thing, the droll thing of the Australian, is very good with comedy if the writing is there. That larrikinism. Yes, that yeah. larrikinism and that sort of laid back. And we can laugh at ourselves. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. 
But I mean, of course, they're all very individual when I think about them. But it's hard to define that. What does a good musical need to have, do you think? Well, I think it needs to have a good story, yeah. great characters, yeah. and a very good score. Yeah. Book and score. And some sort of heart and ability oh, well, to, uh, well, to yeah, move you. To, yes, to, yeah. to be involved, to have someone to cheer for. Quite a few dramatic roles in your repertoire, and, and I'm thinking, well, these are musicals, Kiss Me Kate and Boys from Syracuse, have their um, original source material in Shakespeare. Have you ever done Shakespeare? Never done Would Shakespeare. Would you like to do Shakespeare? Well, I don't quite know that I'd be good at that. Really? I didn't really have the grounding in it very much at school. Right. And uh, I don't really see myself as a Shakespearean actor. I went to Stratford-on-Avon some years ago thinking I'll go and I've enjoyed what seeing Shakespeare and uh, and attending performances of it but it doesn't really I don't really think I'm it's my area but when I went to, to Stratford they were doing Kiss Me Kate oh really there's <laughs> <laughs> no other Shakespeare place no, Kiss no, the, me Kate. The, the night I was there that I could see something it was right. Kiss Me Kate and I thought oh the bard's trying to tell me something yeah, yeah. stay where you are are you superstitious in the theatre? Do you have an opening night ritual? I have a, a locket my mother gave me when I took over How to Succeed that had my father's photograph in it. And I would never leave the dressing room without holding on to that before I go on. Wow. That's, that, and I, I, if I've left the dressing room and I'm in the wings, I say to the stage manager, I have to go back to my room. So I'm superstitious in that way because I do come from a... My mother was an O'Toole, so there's a bit of Irish there. Right. But I do, that locket is, and of course, I lost my mother during Sweet Charity. She died in the middle of that. And uh, that was an enormous shock, because she was only 48. And she'd broken her hip, and it had, she'd had a, a, another fall during the rehabilitation. They had to do it again. And by this stage, I'd got down to Melbourne to do charity. And I was flying up on the weekends to try and see her because she was in a very anxious state because she really believed she was never going to walk again. She was very good on her feet, rather fast on her feet and good on her feet and being a very independent woman. And she really got herself into a terrible state. And then the doctor said to me, we're going to do the second operation on the Saturday. He said, I just think you should give yourself a weekend. And she died on the Sunday, so I didn't go up that weekend. So that was a really, it was a heart very hard and I guess you give yourself a lot of guilt also through through that too well you do and but in a strange way having that show that I had to do I suppose I didn't have to do it but that's always been part of my nature um, was was helpful at the time doctor theatre therapy absolutely our parents are, are people that we want to please constantly. I guess it's been a, a big disappointment that you haven't been able to share your well, enormous success with them. Well, I was so grateful, although it was so early in my career, that my mother saw me do that. She saw you do charity? She saw me right, do great. charity, yeah. Great. Yeah. And at least they're with you now with that locket. Yeah, and she's in it too now. <laughs> yeah. Do you read reviews? I used to. I don't so much now. Right. I, I mean, it's wonderful when you get a good one. The only ones you ever remember are the, the bad ones. Yeah. Yeah, and they're the ones that stay with you. And uh, One person's opinion. One person. I know it is, but once it's there, yeah. it's there. 
So I think, do I need to put myself through this? I, I very much respect um, the opinion of my friends, the, whose, whose work I very much admire. And uh, and there are, you know, I, I can't say that I've had a lot of bad reviews, but anything, but you do, you do it does affect you, I think. Mm. You can't help but, no. can't help but not be affected by it. But I think now I'm gonna be kinder to myself. Turing. It gets back to you eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Touring's been an essential part of your career. Yes. Did you enjoy touring? Yes. I guess you've seen a lot of the country. And I've just got a lot of friends in a lot of different states, really, yeah. because that initial time we spent so long in those states. We weren't in and out in six weeks. We were there for some time. So, you you know, you really got to know people that you look forward to seeing. You see their children grow up and you see the grandchildren come along. It's amazing. You've sustained... A, a terrifically long career, I think, because you've reinvented yourself. You've not only been a performer, but a director, a choreographer, a mentor, a teacher. How important is diversification to a career? Very important. Yeah. I say to people, learn as much as you can, because you never know what you're going to be called on to do, particularly the young ones, and they do now. I mean, they're learning all sorts of skills, and I think that's really important. You can't say, no, I don't do that, or no, I won't do that. I think you have to open to, be everything, to everything and say yes. Because mm. you never know where it's going to lead. You never know who you're going to meet on a show sometimes. Or who's watching you. Or who's watching I mean, you. You talk about that little cameo you had in um, How to Succeed mm. and Hello Dolly. Mm. And next you're doing Sweet Charity. People it, are watching. People are watching. Mm. And, and they're also watching, I think, how you conduct yourself. Because I think there's a lot to do with the balance of, of a company you know, how people conduct themselves in, you know, accepting things and making the best of it. I really do. And and I, I, be, I really believe in that because even when you, you're in an audition situation where you're auditioning people and you love something that someone's done, but you know they're not going to be right for what you're, you're looking for, but people do remember you, and I say that to the young ones. Don't you know? It's hard to to lose to not get a show, but you never know. People. Well, that's what happened for me. See, Betty Pounder wanted me, but she knew I wasn't right for, for Baba Birdie. But I was the first on the list to go back. Yeah. So you know, just don't try try to keep buoyant. <laughs> not easy, I know, but. I guess performing is a given for you. But is there another role that you specifically enjoy? Perform. I've gone back to really enjoying performing. Yeah. I must say, I find directing now. There's so many technical elements involved in directing now that I just don't think you know that's kind of passed me by. But um, and and I do enjoy mentoring. I do enjoy the the times I have been over to places like Whopper or uh, VCA, and I get a great kick out of recognizing people that that have gone on and then suddenly. I try and go to the showcase every year of particularly Whopper because they come up you know, come up here and uh, and just seeing them getting great roles and mm. you know going on and upward and onward or onward and upward perhaps one day they too might have a theatre named after them. oh my goodness what about that what about that how exciting I mean, it is exciting and it's it's something you never dream that would happen. I mean, I got such a shock when David rang me and I I said, oh, 
because I, I was immediately thinking, why me? But he said, we want to dedicate it to musicals and you've done a lot of musicals throughout your career and you know, and I said, well, the fact that you want to dedicate it to musicals and cabaret, you've actually, that that's won me over and, and I'm, I'm very, very honoured to be there and I'm very excited about what I see there. I just think that, you know. What they achieve on that What they achieve on that little size. stage, stage constantly yeah. amazes me. Mm. How clever they all are! I mean, not only the performers, but the directors and the and the designers. How they make that—they just transform it. It's, it's wonderful, and that it's had such a lovely success. When they, even I think those that were the originators of it all had had no idea that it would had would go into the place it is so quickly because it takes a while but I think with that opening with charity um, which was a, a lovely surprise uh, it just started it started people talking and it's it's just and they, they're trying to do a lot of good things with the new musicals Australia and and now um, they've got a, another initiative to have young creatives come and work with directors and lighting designers and everything is then they, they will have uh, be paid to do to um, take on that secondment so I think all those things are very good under the same umbrella yeah mm. and giving developing artists yes, their first, first chance, chance or that's right to develop their craft yes yeah yes it's not just about the theatre it's about what the theatre can do for the industry as far as giving them a showcase yeah I mean, you know, it's it's see overseas. Even today, we don't have the number of shows for people to be auditioning for. So mm. there's only so many big ones a year, and it, if you if you don't get into them, you know, it's a bit of a void ahead of you, isn't it? Mm. Um, and look, and commercial theatre here, I guess the producers need to do product where they're sort of guaranteed that. An audience might come. Yeah. Whereas at the Hayes, they can take some sort of risk well, with can. the wonderful repertoire that they're choosing. And to reinvent shows that are, you know, like they reinvent a charity. Yep. And and I think that's that's the the way to, to open up the opportunities for people in in all areas of the creative process. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still get nervous? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't get any better. No. But I imagine that dissipates as soon as you walk on the stage. Well, once you're settled and it starts to, to, if you can feel that audience and you know that it's all right, yes. But it, it it's it's not easy, and particularly I found you know when you, when you're performing in a theatre named after you, it's a bit of a an ask sometimes. Hmm. I think to myself, my goodness, are people thinking, why her? <laughs> <laughs> why not? Why not? What makes you happy? Oh, I just think not have, feeling well and feeling um, surrounded by people who love me and I love and and just the opportunity to to do what I love. We've have had the opportunity to do what I've loved in my life. I think that's very gratifying. Nancy, thank you. Um, I really appreciate, and we appreciate, I'm speaking for the listener, your time and advice and generosity of spirit um, and all that you've given us over several decades of performance in Australian theatres. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure.
What a treat to have that conversation with Nancy. She is a national treasure and one of the theatre's great legends. A really lovely person as well, as you can tell from hearing the lady herself and her reflections on a stellar career. In the next episode, we examine the Australian musical. Celebrating Australia's huge contribution to the form over the past century is a new book written by two authorities on the form, Peter Pinney and Peter Jackson.